All of the raindrops were lemon drops and gum drops. Oh, what a world that would be. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So before we start talking about chapter 11, I wanted to remind you guys that we are sponsored by Rooted Childhood. Rooted Childhood is a seasonal collection of handicrafts and ways to connect with young children through stories and songs. Remember, Charlotte Mason emphasized handicrafts as a way to encourage children to use their hands in a purposeful way. Whether by creating something useful for the home or something that brings beauty to the world, handicrafts are a wonderful way to spend time as a family where even the littlest learners can do meaningful work. Each month, Rooted Childhood offers a curated set of stories, poetry, books, and eight simple handicraft projects, along with a detailed supply list, video tutorials, and beautiful photos for inspiration. I know something like that would be good for me because I am not an artsy craftsy type person. So having someone list out exactly what to do and what to tell the kids. And exactly what to buy. And exactly what to buy. Because I don't know what to buy. That would be awesome for me. Visit RootedChildhood.com and use coupon code CharlotteMasonSays15 for a special discount just for our listeners. Okay, chapter 11. Faith and Duty. Review. So the next five chapters Is it really five? Yeah. There's three for faith and duty and then two other reviews. If you look back at the table of contents, they all say review. So I posed this question in one of my Facebook groups and I didn't really get an answer because it's really obscure question. Why on earth did she include book reviews in parents and children? Because Parents and Children is a... It's a collection of essays. It's a collection of articles from the PNEU newsletter. Uh, one thing I read is, you know, it's kind of the best of the best of the time. So, I, I don't know. My question is, why are book reviews included as best of the best essays? Well, as we, as, as I read through this and listened to it, it seemed like it was a very concise thought of what education should be. And what Charlotte Mason thought about education, starting from the base point of what this guy Felix Adler said in his book. I mean, I, I think it's a good article. I think it's a good essay. I enjoyed reading it and I will get a lot out of it. It's the question of why didn't she just present this as her own thoughts instead of as a review of someone else's book that then gives her thoughts? Yeah, I, I guess. Well, I know I enjoyed listening and reading through it. I think there's a lot of good stuff in here and I think we're going to I think we're going to enjoy the discussion we have, and I think there's going to be a lot of wealth. A lot of wealth? That doesn't make sense. A wealth of information? Yeah, I think there's going to be a wealth of information that we can glean from this material. Anyways, chapter 11. Parents as teachers of morals. So she starts this with a pretty good definition of education. She says, education, properly understood, is the science of life, and every attempt to formulate this science is to be hailed with interest, and with a measure of gratitude in proportion to its success. I think that's more of a, I guess, why we're looking at these books instead of a definition. You're right. That's not a definition. Because her definition is back on page 32. Yep. yep. She's already defined it several times, and it's not this. The uh, science of life part is. Right. Education 
is the science of life. That's their, that's the definition. Yes. And every attempt to formulate this science is to be hailed with interest. The next three chapters, we're going to be looking at three different works that are attempts to formulate this science. She hails it with interest and with a measure of gratitude in proportion to excess, its success, and therefore she thinks that these are the greatest works trying to formulate the science of education. She thinks they're worthy of reading. Yeah. That's that is one thing that she she does. She stays on the cutting edge of things. Yeah. Whether it's science or education or uh, you know other things. She she does read the the modern literature on it all. It seems that way. Uh so she continues to talk and she says Thinking minds everywhere are engaged in furnishing their quota towards this great work in one or another of its aspects, physical, social, religious. I thought it was interesting that she did not listen, list academic. Physical, social, religious were the only three. That's true. Academic, academia was not on there. Oh, that stood out to me. I didn't dig any further into that. How interested is Charlotte Mason in pure academics? Obviously, she's more interested in the physical, social, and religious at least right now as she's writing this yeah interesting keeping on going the most important goal of education is the love and dutiful attitude of the will the sole practical outcome of education is the love and dutiful attitude of the will so again not academics right it's good the knowledge is good but there's so much more to it well i think Charlotte Mason believed that you learn things to do something, to be to become something, to grow. You don't just learn things because things are there to be learned. Yeah. Because academics is a way of life. Learning is life. So why would you relegate learning to just academics? And therefore, what value is academics as a sole niche in education? So this was a quote from Mr. Huxley, which is Thomas Huxley, who was, he lived in from 1825 to 1895, and he basically established the sciences as a course of study of their own. Previous to this, it was either a gentleman's type of hobby, or people studied medicine to study the sciences. They were saying, you know, he was a catalyst before him. They studied medicine. After him, they could take courses in biology and physics and the sciences. Interesting. In in colleges. Um, he was self-taught, so he also believed in the education of the working man, which is something that Charlotte Mason is, is big on as well. Yeah, she's very much for that. Where so everyone what, can learn. What quote is this we're looking at? The laws of nature and ways of men, the love. Love and dutiful, and dutiful attitude will. of the will. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the three books, one is this Problems of Secular Morality from American View, second is from a French View, and the third is a bunch of sermons. Something else. So we're going to look at Mr. Felix Adler. Mr. Felix Adler was born in Germany. He is the son of a rabbi, and his family <laughs> moved to New York when his father became the rabbi of a temple there. Went back to Germany for uh, college to become a rabbi, and he was strongly influenced by Neo-Kantianism, 
and the thought that morality can be established independently from theology. So then he went back home and preached a sermon at his father's temple. Synagogue. Synagogue. Place. And did not mention God. Oh, well done. (laughs) And basically absolute, according to Wikipedia, shocked the congregation and did not become a rabbi. But members of the congregation found him a position at Columbia University, and he became a professor. That makes sense. And basically got tenure and did his entire life there. So he he is he is Jewish and very firmly founded in the rabbinical tradition. So interesting. That's who he is, and he wrote the moral instruction of children. And. She says the condition is that it must be unsectarian. Adler interprets this to exclude all theistic teaching, whatever it is, and that the child he writes for has no sanctions beyond those he finds in his own breast. Yep. Basically, morality needs to come from inside the kid. And I looked up the definition of sanction because this and a little bit further on made me curious as to the actual definition. It is the official permission or approval for an action. Ah. And then morality is defined as principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. So the, in her example is about lying. You know, you have the, the command you, or what the, the child or the teacher says to the people, thou shalt not lie. And the child can take it or leave it because there is no sense of ought. There is no power behind the command. Right. And it brought to mind the passage from Jeremiah 17 that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's very true. Well, she goes on to say that for my part, for my part, I should suspect of quibbling and dishonest intention. Any boy or girl who would ask me, why ought I not lie? I should hold up before such a child the ought in all its awful majesty. The right to reason about these matters cannot be conceded until after the mind has attained a certain maturity. She disagrees with Adler vehemently on this point, that morality comes from inside of us. Yeah. To attempt to treat of morals without dealing with the sanctions of morality. And that's where I looked it up. Mm Mm-hmm. The sanctions of morality is to work from the circumference instead of from the center. So that would be the official permission or approval for principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong. She she gets back to this point in a bit. So th- there are more thoughts to come on this point. I have no more thoughts now. Just a quick one. The Inquisition would be the Spanish Inquisition, um, where an estimated three to 5,000 people were executed for believing something different than the Roman Catholic Church believed. And the Thuggy is, in India, it was an organized gang of professional robbers and murderers. And they would take advantage, or in order to take advantage of their victims, they would join the travelers and gain their confidence. And this would allow them to surprise and strangle the travelers with a handkerchief or a noose. They would then rob and bury their victims. Huh. I wonder if that's where we get the, the term thug from. It is exactly where you get the term thug from. Look at me being all smart and stuff. <laughs> so. So morality comes from without. 
Yes. And or she, it, it needs to come from without. It needs to come from without because if it doesn't come from without, it's going to be inherently selfish. And I think we talked about that in our last in our last no, discussion. No, it, it'll bit. come up. It comes up in a little bit, in a it, couple pages. It did, but I remember talking about that at some... I remember editing that at some point. Because <laughs> I had to edit out a bunch of me rambling on about nonsense. So, why not use the Bible? Um, there's two arguments. One says that there's, the educationalists say there's so much else that you can learn, so don't keep studying sacred literature. It's a waste of time. And religious people, on the other hand, object that the it's not good to make the Bible common as a classroom book. This is talking about when they spend 15 to 16 hours a week in the German states. Again, coming at the argument from two different ways. Either there's a lot else, or it's too sacred. Yeah, let's not dilute the sacredness of this by using it as an educational text. Yeah. I don't have anything in this next one. The Bible is classic literature? Yeah. The thing that I had here was that I found interesting is that she says the Bible as a mere instrument of education is at the very least as valuable as the classics of Greece or Rome. And I was having a discussion, I was a conversation with my cousin about this not not too long ago. And we were talking about the Bible as a historical document and the fact that Plutarch was one copy 300 years after Plutarch died. And that's the original manuscript we have of Plutarch. But the historical community deems it as fact and and it's written in stone. And Plutarch is exactly right. Well, the Bible has all kinds of manuscripts that are within 100, if not 50 years of the death of the people that are supposed to have written them. And there are lots and lots of manuscripts and copies and all kinds of stuff. So when you look at historical documents, the Bible as a historical document is more verifiable than the majority, if not all, other historical documents. So when you talk about it in an education in an educational scenario, it's at the very least as valuable as those classics. Because not only is it verifiable uh, based on number of manuscripts and, and the time those manus- manuscripts were, it's also verifiable based on other histories. Mm-hmm. You have recorded history of the fact that Abram and Sarai went to Egypt. That's a thing that happened. King Darius's command that everyone should pray to the God of the, the Israelites, that's a thing that happened based on other histories. It's not just the Bible. Now, those other histories didn't include things like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. But there are pieces of the Bible that are historically verifiable based on other documents that the historical community deems accurate and true. And there's enough corroborating evidence. And as we find more archaeologically, there's enough corroborating evidence that the Bible is an accurate historical document. One of the gospel writers, I don't remember which one. Referred to somebody as a tetrarch of this area. Mm-hmm. Luke did. It was it Luke? Mm-hmm. And people are like, oh, this proves it's not true because there's no tetrarchs at this time. And then they found something with it inscribed as the tetrarch of this. And they went, oh, well. And I, I, I remember a lot of that being very popular when I was in high school. It was very popular in the, in the early 2000s. 
And I think Lee Strobel's The Case for the Bible. It would have a lot of that information there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, take take my word for it or our word for it or 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 go do that research yourself and and find out just how wrong I am. But uh, the Bible is a verifiable historical document. And mm-hmm. if you talk to any historian who's not biased against the Bible or Christians or scripture, they'll tell you such. And, and they'll agree with you that, yeah, the Bible is a valid historical document because it is. There's a lot of wonky stuff in there, but at least, at the very least, the, the narrative story it tells is verifiably accurate. All the literatures of the world put together utterly fail to give us a system of ethics in precept and example, motive and sanction, complete as that to which we have been born as our common inheritance in the Bible. So the Bible gives us our the best, the, the best and most and, complete set of morals. The best and most complete set of morals and philosophy. Yeah. On top of, you know, the revelation of God and the teaching of religion. Yeah. It's I, also this great this great book. Right. Well, and that's and that's why that's why I, I wanted to talk about the fact that it is verifiable as a historical document. Mm-hmm. Because okay, fine. You you don't believe in the the theology of the Bible. Great. You can ignore a lot of the things that are in the Bible that are spiritual or what people would call mumbo jumbo. Fine. It still is a historical document. That puts together a system of ethics. Absolutely. And and that system of ethics is what Western civilization is built upon. For you know, 1,700 years, roughly speaking. It's been the schoolbook of modern Europe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, she's got such good words. She does. Beyond that, we just saw the the uh, Notre Dame, the Cathedral of Notre Dame burn. Notre Dame. Notre Dame is the school. Notre Dame. It it burned recently. And the one person, again, name dropping here, uh, Ben Shapiro did. Uh, he, he went on about 15 minutes on his radio show about what. Notre Dame stood for as a relic of Judeo-Christianity of the time and how it changed the world, the Western world at least. And Mm. all of the good things we have in our lives right now, women's suffrage, equality of races, all of those things, respect for elders and love of children and education, that all stems from the Judeo-Christian traditions. And so seeing... Notre Dame burn is a very sad thing because it's a symbolic, it is symbolic of what's going on in our society right now, where we are burning those traditions to, to make way for whatever we want. Yeah. I heard that the prime minister, their, their head person. Yeah. When he was, was talking about rebuilding it, he was very, very careful to say that they're not doing it because it's a Christian thing, but because it's a, a cultural and sure. uh, French and uh, national thing. Well, there's been a lot of issues with the Catholic Church in France and Spain. You, you mentioned the Inquisition. That was a problem. That, that there, were, there, there has been evil done in the name of the gospel, in the name of Judeo-Christian principles. Things like the Spanish Inquisition. The Crusades, and that cannot be ignored. Yeah. But having said that, still the the good that has come about because of the Judeo Christian tradition 
has shaped the world we live in today. And it can also not be ignored. Yeah. You, you can't ignore either side of that coin that, yes, evil people did evil things in the name of something good. Evil people also do evil things in the name of something evil. They're evil people. They're doing evil things. And, and they're finding whatever justification they need to to make it right in their own mind. Because the heart is deceitful. Right. Okay, so so let's go ahead and move on because I think we beat that dead horse to death and then again. So in her day, um, the Bible is, and her, starting in her day, moving up to us, uh, up to current time, the Bible as a lesson book is tabooed. So educationalists are called upon to produce something to take its place in the origination of ideas and the formation of character. If you're going to cut out the most awesome book ever, you got to have something to, to follow it. Good luck. And she says he does a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. This is a really hard task. And he can, she says, the fact that he is at all successful is obviously due to the fact that his own mind is impregnated with his Bible lore and sacred law, even though he can't propound it to his students because he's he's these barriers are put up which reading this before i i looked up who mr adler was i think it's both the fact that the the confines of the american non unsecretarianism in addition to his own beliefs so i i don't think it was just that he had these constraints placed upon him i think this was also what he believed I, i'm gonna guess he took it to an extreme that he took the the mandates okay. of the public education and and took it to the extreme to completely remove theology from the equation. But that's just an assumption on my part. So before moving on into his work, she gives a suggestion to parents to keep a diary of the growth in the child's physical, mental, and moral growth with particular attention to the moral. Not only for the parents' use, but she says this could add to the science of education a considerable quantity of material to make generalizations from. Enough parents keep enough diaries that it'll be... Scientific evidence. It'll be scientific evidence. That's funny. So... <laughs> I missed that. So kind of as an aside, she says, we're, we're talking about this, she's like, and we should probably do this too. Figure out how the morals and how the stirrings of this happens in the children. And hey, mothers, let's add one more thing to your plate. Right, because you don't have enough to do already. Also, keep a diary for each child. Which I don't think it's a bad thing to do. Not at all. It seems like a very good idea. I like the idea. So then we move on to fairy tales and how to use them. And she says that Mr. Adler said justly, that much of the selfishness of the world is due not to actual hard-heartedness, but to a lack of imaginative power. The thing that jumped out to me is this lack of imaginative power. I've seen a couple of headlines, article posts lately, about how are, are we destroying the next generation's imagination? And are, are we making things so formulaic that they have no room to, to maneuver? And then, and thus lose the ability to. And uh, I did. Yeah. I did a quick search, and I found one about you know screens, using screens as technology to take away boredom and dead time, is leading to 
a lack of imaginative play. Absolutely. So I, I just thought that that was interesting that that's not the same reason that they had, but it's a, a, an issue once again mm-hmm. in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would say that's true. The other the other thing to look at, and and I would have to do some research on this, but I'm going to mention it anyway, is how many successful movies Hollywood puts out now that are either remakes or they're mined from other material. They're, Two, three, four. Yeah. Well, and that, yeah, that's the other thing is sequels. Look at Disney right now. Disney's entire catalog is sequels, cinematic universes, or live action versions of old movies. Aladdin just came out as a live action movie. The Lion King is set to come out this year. They did uh, Beauty and the Beast as a live action movie. I don't understand why they're doing this because they already have decent movies of those things. They don't need to recreate it, but they're going to. Why? Money and they have no other good ideas, I guess? Which is one of the things that we enjoyed about Pixar is that they had original ideas. They did. And then they got bought by Disney. And Yay! hence we have Toy Stories. Was it three and four? Are we up to four? four? Four is coming out soon. I don't know if two was while Pixar was still was under Disney. I, I don't know when that actually happened. And I'm not going to look it up because I don't really care. So talking about fairy tales... Apparently, he reinstates fairy tales, so they must have been taken out at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, he has three things. He says, first, tell the story. Don't give it to the child to read. Make, make it a narrative. The second part is treat the moral element as an incident. Do not take the moral plum out of the fairy tale pudding, but let the child enjoy it as a whole. I, I feel like textbooks do a great job of taking the moral plum out. Absolutely. Uh, just remembering the textbooks that I read through as a child. I I would take my literature book and finish what we were supposed to do and just keep reading in my literature book. Because <laughs> there's stories and reading. And mm-hmm. Anyways, his third thing is to take out any stories with merely superstitious, merely relic of ancient animism, and again, anything objectable on moral grounds. And and then in comes the question of how evil is too evil to introduce to children. Uh, my thought of the answer there is it depends on the child. It depends on the parents. It depends on what is around that evil, the context. It, it depends. Yeah. We look at our children. Our oldest is able to handle fairy tales that have some elements of evil. Our second can't yeah whenever she's watching a show which is rarely at this point but they do watch some shows if there are dramatic sequences she loses it she can't handle it and i know we've talked about this before and number three on the show getting to be the same way is she a little bit no i haven't noticed that i guess not not nearly as bad but i haven't sat down and watched a movie with them in a while but again uh, wordsworth says that the very knowledge of evil in fairy tales under a certain glamour is of use in saving children from painful and injurious shocks in real life which is what um chesterton says also you know give them give them the dragon so mm-hmm. that they know that the dragon can be slain right because if everything is always gumdrops and gumdrops and fairies gumdrops and something that's a reference to something and i can't i can't come up with it off the top of my head 
All of the raindrops were lemon drops and gum drops. Oh, what a world that would be. That's not at all what I was thinking. Okay. When you said gum drops, that's what came to mind. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a it's a quote from something, and I have no idea what it is. But if everything is gum drops and lollipops in your fairy tales, and there's there's no bad guy, then what do you do? If in our stories, and she talks about this in fables, if in our stories we actually have evil that gets vanquished and bad things that are called out as bad, then that's good. That's a that is a right and good way to show the evil of the world is as evil. As opposed to when they get introduced to evil by someone or something else, and it's not bad, and it's not wrong. The wolf in sheep's clothes. Right. And if you don't know what wolves look like, you can't be like, hey, wait, that's not right. Right. If all you if all you know are what sheep look like, then when a wolf look, walks up, you don't know what it is. It doesn't have to hide from you. It can just be there, and it can take you for a ride. So... I I agree with I agree with Charlotte Mason here in in what she's talking about where there is evil that we need to that we need to introduce to our children. We do need to shelter our children from the evils of the world because there's evil out there that they don't need to experience yet. But that doesn't mean we shelter them from all evil always because at some point we're releasing our children into the world. Yeah. And if we release them as super sheltered, then they're going to get hit with all of the evil all at one time, and it's going to be an information overload. Okay, so moving on to fables then. She says, make sure that we exercise discrimination in our choice of those which, which uh, of those which we use to convey moral ideas to our children. Keeping in mind that there are different origins, whether they're Greek or Asiatic, and those those different types have different thought processes. Yeah, she just says be be particular with your with your fables. Make sure that they're actually doing what we're what they should be. And I think she's saying that Mr. Adler cut out anything that was related to again, related to any form of something that might be religious. Mm-hmm. And then she lists out which ones he specially recommended and then moved on to selected stories from classical literature of the Hebrews, the Bible. And later from that of Greece, particularly the Odyssey and the Iliad. And so coming up with Bible is where she starts having an issue with what Mr. Adler does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and with fair point, because he he treats it as a secular book and she wholeheartedly believes that it is a sacred book. The, the sacred direct revelation of God for the salvation of his people. Mm-hmm. So she says basically... Don't wait until you're done with the fairy tales and the fables to start with the Bible. And I, I love this description that she has. It's, it's very poetic. He should not be able to recall a time before the sweet stories of old filled his imagination. He should have heard the voice of the Lord God in the garden of the, in the cool of the evening. He should have been an awed spectator where the angels descended, ascended and descended upon Jacob's stony pillow. Should have followed Christ through the cornfield on the Sabbath day. And sat in the rows of the hungry multitudes. And and that should happen uh, before they can remember things. It's a question that someone asked us after our last episode is, how do you ground children in the scriptures? And I think this is, this is one of the best descriptions of that. You read the Bible to them. Mm-hmm. And the Bible stories are a part of life. Uh, what we've done is we, we have a couple books that we use. We use the Jesus Storybook Bible, the... 
The Gospel Story Bible. The Gospel Story Bible. And then we recently started reading through the Action Bible, which is a... Graphic novel. Graphic novelization of the Bible. So they're ways of putting Bible stories in front of the children in ways that they can consume easily. We were just with my parents for a week, and the Psalters and the Bible, the, the Action Bible, stayed out. Just They were at the level that the kids could reach. And, and Dad even mentioned, you know, Isaac could not keep his hands off of the Action Bible. Like, that, that was the one he gravitated to, and he would always walk around and hold it. He's also the kid that loves chapter books. Yeah, he doesn't want books with pictures. He wants books with words, lots of words. And then he'll get the Psalter and start singing. Yeah. Which is amazing. Well, and that's, uh, so, so there's, there's two things that we've done on a daily basis with our kids for the last five years, ever since Ian, our oldest, was small, old enough that we could work with him to sit still and be still. We started singing psalms and we started reading Bible stories. And I don't know how many times we've read through both the Jesus Storybook Bible and the Gospel Story Bible. We're on our second copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I need to buy another copy of the Gospel Story Bible because it's falling apart. Yeah, it's being it's been torn to shreds. No, no, it it's it wasn't torn. It's falling apart. Well, okay, that's true. It's <laughs> there, there's a difference. The kids don't actually tear it. No, they've actually they they are very good to those books now. They didn't used to be, but now they are. One of our salters actually has some bite marks in it because someone was Ian. chewing on it. Yeah, it was Naomi. It was Ian. It was it was Naomi. This is a this is a discussion that Crystal and I have had several times, and we we agree that that uh, I am right. We agree that a child named Naomi Ian <laughs> chewed on it. Yep, because yep. because it was so close to his crib that he could reach out and grab it when he woke up. Yeah. Anyway, it was Naomi. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that that salter has some bike marks, regardless of whichever child ate it. Uh, they, the children have loved to, <laughs> they've loved to consume those things. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so, so those are the two things that we've done with our children uh, from a very early age. And now that we're starting to do actual schoolwork, now we're actually reading from the Bible itself. And that's a part of our morning time time is that we read Bible stories straight out of the Bible. Again, they're curated. We're reading specific stories at specific times. We should not say... Far otherwise, that every Bible story is fit for children because it is a Bible story. Right. The other amazing part no, about it, doing... Well, she, she oh, goes sorry, on there. Go she goes on there. Neither would we analyze too carefully, nor draw hard and fast lines to, dis- to distinguish what we should call history, rather, that, rather from that of which it might be said, without a parable spake he not unto them. So, yes, we need to be careful with what we read. No... We don't want to draw a hard and fast line and say, this is history that's spiritual and, and never the twain shall meet. Yeah. The other the other huge benefit is that we have a specific Bible for the children for school. And at random times, they ask if they can read the Bible. Because it's one of the school books. It's in our school ba- mm-hmm. box. So it's kind of off limits. They'll, they'll come up and be like, Mom, can I read the Bible? Yes. Yes, you may read the Bible. <laughs> yeah, that's actually been one of the more fun questions to answer. Can I read the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> what What am I going to say? Am I, I going to say no? 
Okay, so that's Bible stories. And we need... She, we need to... she says also, the moral teaching, the spiritual revelations, and the lovely imagery of the Bible are things with which he is concerned. And of these he can have... Of these he cannot have too much. And then she goes on to talk about how Mr. Adler condensed it because he did keep the the narrative of the Bible and the moral issues without the spiritual. And so she gives a little fragment of what he said and said, we leave it to our readers to decide whether this treatment in quotes improves the Bible narrative or whether this is the sort of thing to lay hold of a child's imagination. Yeah. She leaves it up to us to decide that basically. Okay. Charlotte Mason. So the next we talk about the phraseology of the Bible And then we talk about miracles in the Bible. And then she talks about, should we put the whole Bible into the hands of a child? So the phraseology, she's talked about phraseology in the past already. uh, When she talked about learning the Bible and language. But she says, read your Bible story to your child bit by bit. Get him to tell you in his own words, keeping as close as he can to the Bible words, what you have read. And then if you like, talk about it. But not much. Don't do a practical commentary on every verse in Genesis. To quote a title of a work lately published. Did you look that one up? I did not. Okay, good. Because I, 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 I missed that I should have. Uh, it, honestly, Matthew Henry comes to mind. It's a, it's again that take the plum out of the mm-hmm. the fairy tale pudding. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's the thing is there's there's value in there's value in looking at the Bible verse by verse. There's also value in looking at the Bible as a as a big story. That's the other thing I like about the storybook Bibles that we've done with our children is they are interested in the Bible as a whole. And so from start to finish, it's in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to Christ. In the New Testament, we're looking back to Christ. Christ is the center of the Bible, even though it's even though he's really far to the back of it. Two thirds through. Yeah. Two thirds of the way through. But Christ is is what the, <laughs> the entire Bible hinges upon. So that's the one thing that that these Bibles that we've done with the kids have emphasized over and over. And that's even been good for me to read through and learn and understand is that all of these stories point to Christ. So I, what what she's saying here is that don't break it down verse by verse. Let it speak for itself. And let the child make those connections himself. And as a, as a, I guess a practical Charlotte Mason thing, this is, uh, Bible has its own type of narration as opposed to other works. In Bible, she says here and in many other places, keeping as close as he can to the Bible words. So she, this is where she emphasizes, yes, tell it back to me, but as much as you can, Use the Bible's words. Interesting. So in, in other things, she doesn't make that a point. She just wants them to tell it back. Uh, to, to synthesize it, to, to take it in, to synthesize it, and to tell the story back. How they see it and how they have grasped it. Which is why comprehension questions are not a part of Charlotte Mason right. philosophy. Because that is funneling the child to your conclusions. Mm-hmm. Not to what conclusions they might make. Right. But that's that's not what she does here. She says, keep it as close to the Bible words. So that's that's the phraseology. Just read the Bible to the kid. And and I would say that, especially for young children, 
the annotated and picture book Bibles are good, so long as they actually are good ones. And we've mentioned a couple. There are there are others, I'm sure, that are good that are out there, but, but we have three that we really like. But I'd say be careful with some of those annotated story Bibles, because a lot of them steer very far away from actual scripture, and you find some wonky things in them. Uh, we had a storybook Bible that didn't even talk about Jesus's death and resurrection, didn't talk about sin, didn't talk about people doing bad things. It it did have the death and resurrection. There was one that didn't. We got rid of that one the day it came into our house. Okay. There was another one that did have Jesus's death and resurrection, and it kind of hazed over everything else. And I think we kept that one because at least it hazes over stuff instead of ignores it. But but there there are children's Bibles that you can find that are completely devoid of the gospel and sin and Jesus' death and resurrection. A collection of good stories. Right. A good moral book. Right. Okay, so moving on then. Uh, miracles. Miracles. We talked about this a little bit in our last discussion, so I don't know how much we want to talk about it here. The interesting point that she brought up in this part was the fact that that scientists should be open to miracles, open to the fact that nothing is impossible and that no experience is final. That's true. That was the one part that I drew out of this as opposed to when she talked about miracles earlier. Yeah, because when she talked about miracles earlier, at the very least, she didn't say that. That's interesting. And then the question of, should the whole Bible be put into the hands of children? And do we deal with it as a whole? Do we give them, do we place it in the hands of the children as soon as they can read? And and when will our superstitious reverence for the mere letter of scriptures allow us to break the Bible up to be read as all other literature is in separate books? I was curious about this, and there are a, a few people who have done this there are printed and bound copies of the books of the bible individually she was thinking how delightful it would be that each birthday brings the gift of a new book of the bible progressing in difficulty from year to year beautifully bound and illustrated and that's one of the things that that a couple of these do is they're beautifully bound and illustrated printed in clear inviting type and on good paper so they're, cool. they're out there. And, and I thought that was very excited. exciting. That is very exciting. Okay, so moving... But to return to Mr. Adler. Right, so moving <laughs> moving back to, because she that is a giant aside that she just had, is Bible stories. I disagree with him. Let me tell you my thoughts. And back to Adler. Moral rules from the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's okay. I was home teached. I don't know how to count. Children should be taught to observe moral pictures before any attempt is made to deduce moral principles. But certain simple rules should be given to the very young, must indeed be given them for their guidance. So this whole whole section confused me because she says, here's a valuable suggestion, and then has a quote, and then... You know, at the very end, there's another quote. And then she says, Conceive the barren, common, self-complete, and self-complacent product of the moral teaching on this level. 
So I think is she agreeing with this? I is think, she disagreeing with I, this? So she says it towards the end. She says, uh, I commend the work talking about this book that Adler wrote. She says, I commend the work to the perusal of parents. The Christian parent will assuredly present the thought of law in connection with the lawgiver and will supplement the thousand valuable suggestions he will find here with his own strong conviction that ought is of the Lord God. And so I think this is one of those times where this is a valuable suggestion, but you got to go further than just what Adler says. That's what that, that was my thought anyway. So then she dove into the Odyssey and the Iliad. She she says that he treats the Homeric stories with more grace and sympathy and with less ruthless violation than he mets out to those of the Bible. But again, the whole motive is religious. Mm-hmm. Everything is happening because of the will of the gods. The will of the gods. Which, regardless of which god it is, that is a god. that Or a god influence on something right because the whole reason homer can't get back home is because the gods are pissed at him because he did something they didn't like you should say that again saying the right name because homer's the author sorry odysseus not homer homer wrote the story odysseus was the guy i'm glad i caught that (laughs) me too she doesn't actually say odysseus here yeah she does oh no of the odyssey and ulysses she she name drops other people Telemachus. I had to look all those Liartes. up. Because mm-hmm. I don't know that I actually read either of those. I didn't. I bought one of them. You know what? I take it back. No, mom Mom read aloud to us. Uh, it, I, I, it wasn't the actual poem. It was a novelization of it. It was a, it was a children's novelization of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I really, I remember really enjoying that. Well, what she says, what's so inspiring is the story of Ulysses to the boy in search of adventures. And what greater stimulus to courage, prudence, presence of mind than in the the escapades of the hero. I almost, oh, that is escapes. And what greater <laughs> stimulus. Yeah, I can remember reading that as, or listening to it as a kid and really enjoying it because it's awesome. And he does awesome things, just like just like any other fantastical tale. I guess we just have to get past, either get past or get used to the language it's written in. Why I, you- I ran into that with Beowulf because I read Be- I know I read Beowulf in high school, and I was just like, "What on earth? This why is this held up as such an amazing tale?" Right. One or the other. Either you you figure out how to read it in its ancient form, which I'm I'm not into that. Sorry. Or you find someone who did a good novelization of it, who keeps the spirit of it, but puts it in a form that's that's readable and more easily consumed. So one or the other of them. And then after you've consumed those, don't go watch the movie Troy. Because it's a complete bastardization of Achilles' tale. But do go watch Troy because it's a fun movie. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, the third <laughs> section of his work consists of lessons on duty. Here again, we have excellent counsels and delightful illustrations. So this is where she capt- or she catches him in phraseology. I- and I find this fascinating. Because she says, 
the commandment against lying is, or no, I'm sorry, not she. Adler says, the commandment against lying is assumed and its obligation acknowledged at the outset. And she goes, well, if you're using the word commandment, that means somebody commanded it. And that means your duty is relative to a higher authority. So watch your words around Charlotte Mason. Seriously. Because she, she will call you on it. So a child's inducements to learn. I did not look this one up. Inducements? No, the story of Hillel. Oh. I missed that. I did underline this a, a long line here, though. The motives provo- proposed for seeking knowledge are poor and inadequate. To succeed in life, to gain esteem, to satisfy yourself, and to be able possibly to benefit others are by no means soul-compelling motives. The child who is encouraged to learn, because to learn is his particular duty in that state of life, to which it has pleased God to call him, is the strongest of conceivable motives. And in that sense, he is rendering that which is required of him by the supreme authority. Growing up, we were not allowed to do homework on Sundays. And mom didn't do work on Sundays. Dad didn't do work on Sundays. And one of the reasons mom gave was, right now, school is your job. Which which is what she's saying here. It, your mm. particular duty in the state of life God has called you to, right, in this moment, is to learn. Specifically to learn. So mm-hmm. which is schooling. Well, that was one of the only reasons that... that- I made it through college is because you put me through school and I had a rough time with that because I was going to school and doing college stuff and you were being a professional and working and it just felt weird. But you were able to convince me over time that no, going to school is your job. That's, that's your work. Do your work. And finally you pounded it through that, (laughs) through my thick skull and, and I got it. But I, I, I try and use that language with the children uh, you, you need to do your work. This is your work. It's your job. There's also, I don't know if it's a quote or just an idea that the the work of childhood is play. And and get trying to get back to that that idea. Yeah. And then she continues on with, you know, this this drowning man. Be brave because you're better than the forces of nature. She says, no, it's better to be brave and struggle manfully to save the life that God has given you. Yep. So by removing God from the situation removes your biggest why. Mm-hmm. Why should I do this? Why should I struggle? Why should I try to save my life? Well, it's the life that God has given you. And she almost concludes because she says this and then adds a little bit more. Yeah, she concludes a couple times. It's like watching the third Lord of the Rings movie where it ends oh, about yeah. five times. That was... That got old after the second time. Right? I remember. And I love Lord of the Rings. I absolutely love Lord of the Rings. I've read the Cimmerillion. I've read some of the histories. They ended the movie like five times. They did. I remember I needed to pee at the end of it. (laughs) And I was sitting there doing doing the dancing thing, staring up at a giant screen going, I really need to pee. Oh, good. It's almost ending. Oh, it's not ended yet. It was like an hour of five endings. And I was dancing the entire time. Maybe 30 minutes. No, it's a three hour movie. 
I think it's a four-hour movie. Uh, that might be the extended version. Oh, okay. That's the version I did. <laughs> Again, I love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> we bought the extended versions. Yeah. No, the theatrical release was only, I think, three hours, maybe two and a half. I could look it up, but I don't really care. But the last third of it is spent on ending. Charlotte Mason says, I have taken up Mr. Adler's work so fully because it is one of the most serious and successful attempts with which I am acquainted to present a graduated course of ethics suitable for children of all ages. She she puts her stamp of approval on it. With a caveat, like you mentioned earlier, the Christian parent will assuredly present the thought of law in connection with a lawgiver and supplement the thousands of valuable successions he will find here with his own strong conviction that ought is of the Lord God. And then she ends two more times. But... Also, Christians don't don't fail in your moral teaching. Well, I feel like that goes hand in hand. I mean, if if you're trying to get rid of God from the Bible and from teaching and from morality, then you're not going to have good, solid moral grounding. So Adler's ethics course will fail in giving the children ethics because when confronted with the question of why, why those ethics, why this, why that, well, there's no answer. So lean on the Bible and lean on Scripture and lean on Christ as as that reason for ethics, and you'll be good. I really didn't have anything after that, though, because then she talks about the importance of ethical instruction. Therefore, we hail with gratitude such a contribution to the practical ethics of the nursery and schoolroom as Mr. Adler's work on the moral instruction of children. Want to say one more time that this month we're being sponsored by Rooted Childhood. So please go over to Rooted Childhood. Use coupon code Charlotte Mason says fifteen for a special discount offer, and they have cool stuff, handicraft stuff that make non-handicraft people like me very happy. There you go. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.